Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, my friends, I want to let you all know that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead, after being knocked down, is now available for pre-order. I'll make sure the link is available in the show notes below. All right, my friends, let's do the show. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybox. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Today, my friends, we are journeying deep into the story box once again and unboxing the story of the legendary Guy Kawasaki. Now, for those of you that don't know who he is, Guy is a chief evangelist of Canva. If you don't know what Canva is, go and check it out. A lot of creatives and a lot of business people these days use Canva. And he's also the creator of Guy Kawasaki's Remarkable People podcast. He's an executive fellow of the Haas School of Business, UC Berkeley, and a junicate professor of the University of New South Wales. He was the chief evangelist of Apple and a trustee of the Wikimedia Foundation. He has written many, many books, but some of them are Wise Guy, The Art of the Start 2.0, the Art of Social Media, Enchantment, and 11 other books. Guy has a BA from Stanford University and an MBA from UCLA, UCLA and an honorary doctorate from Babson College, among many other, other things. His other affiliations include Mercedes-Benz, Peninsula Humane Society, and so many other great things. But Guy is obviously most notable for his work with Apple and now Canva too, along with the advent of his books. This was a fascinating conversation, which did take place a while ago now, but I think once again, it has a lot of relevance to what is going on in society today. I did enjoy speaking with Guy and I think you guys are going to love what he has to say. Uh, so if you do get something from it, please share it around to all your friends and your family. Let everyone know about this one. Also, my friends, don't forget that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, is now available for pre-order. It is just around the corner, so I'm very, very excited about this one, and I hope that you guys go and get a copy of the book. Uh, if you want to wait till it gets released to get a copy, then that is fantastic too, but I hope that you guys go and uh, get you get yourself a copy anyway. 
All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me into the story box and learn more about the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the stories of none other than Guy Kawasaki. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me as your guest. Thank you so much for making the time out of your very busy schedule. I really do appreciate it. You have such a wide variety of things that you, you, you do cover. You're quite intelligent, I have to say, um, with all the things that I read out. Um, before we dive into your, your backstory and how this all got started, which I'm very curious about, I have one question I normally ask all my guests, which is, what does success look like to you? Success looks to me like being total in charge of my own time. So I'm not at the whim of anybody. <laughs> I just pick and choose what I want to do. Mm, I like that. When was the moment for you that you sort of realized that success was in fact, being in charge of your own time. Was it a catalyst moment well, for you? Or was it well, first of all, I, I haven't achieved it yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I am still at the whims of other people <laughs> and expenses. So, uh, yeah, I can't. I, I figured it out about 20 years ago, but I have not yet achieved it. How's that? Mm. I like that answer still, because I, I always believe that life is always continuously learning and growing and figuring things out. And I like how you mentioned success has for you, it revolves around being in complete control of your time, which is very difficult to do. So I'm curious <laughs> about how, or what are some of the things that you do at the moment that sort of help you be in control and manage your time wisely? Well, I say no a lot. <laughs> I mean, that's the key. And, um, you know, I, I try to reply to everybody, but, uh, and I try to say yes as much as I can, but there's some stuff that just, it doesn't interest me or just take too much. Um, so the ability to say no is a powerful skill, but to completely contradict what I just said, Saying yes all the time and figuring out how to do it later is a good idea, especially when you're young, that, you know, you just keep saying yes and figure it out later and you'll be surprised at how much you accomplish. It's a good point you raised there, which I'm interested in, in actually the best way to say no to somebody because doing this, I get rejected yeah. a lot. So I was, I was quite pleasantly <laughs> shocked. <laughs> um, and, and really thankful that you actually said yes. Um, I, got, I got the email guy and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, no, no, yeah, it's bullcrap. But uh, it made me even more grateful. But I'm curious, <laughs> what have you learned about the best techniques or ways of saying no to somebody? Basically, well, my observation is that most people don't expect an answer at all, okay? So even if you do nothing more than say no in an answer, to actually acknowledge and answer something by saying no, you're probably ahead of 90% of the world right there. And, and I can't tell you how many times people have said, 
oh, well, I never expected you to say yes anyway, but just the fact that you answered shows me what a great guy you are. And I thought, well, okay, so if you didn't expect me to answer, why did I answer at all? But anyway, that's a different point. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's that. And usually I tell people it's because I am busy. Um, I don't, you know, I don't really... I don't really get into details, right? So I don't, you know, if somebody sends me what I think is a stupid idea, I don't tell them, well, I don't want to meet with you because I think it's a stupid idea because <laughs> then we're going to get into an argument and the person is going to try to convince me why it's not stupid, but I've already decided. So um, I, it's, it's kind of like when you reject a job applicant you're not completely transparent, right? You don't say to a job applicant, well, the reason why I rejected you is because you're a dumbass who has, you know, stinky cologne and whatever. You're incompetent and I checked your references and they were lousy. You don't tell them all that. You just say, well, we, we had a lot of candidates and we found someone who was better suited for our position than you. Mm. <laughs> How are you going to argue with that? I mean, <laughs> I, I had somebody once when I actually went for a job interview, they said to me, we'll get back to you with some uh, like feedback. So I'm like, okay, yeah. fair enough. I thought I did a great job in the actual interview itself. But then yeah. I got a phone call two days later and they actually really ripped into me. Like they said, you did all this wrong and this is exactly why we're not hiring you. And I was like, oh. because <laughs> I actually But that's actually useful. I mean, assuming they were truthful and, you know, I'm surprised that anybody does that because that takes a lot of energy. Mm. You know, it takes a lot of an analysis and organization and stuff. Just saying we found someone better qualified, that's the end of the discussion. But if you say, okay, so these are the five things you did wrong, man, that's like an hour or two hour discussion right there. Mm. It sort of worked me out to the fact that I did need to say readjust my yeah. my way of actually doing interviews. <laughs> It really, it really hurt. Like when I heard that sort of stuff, I was like, oh damn, I didn't realize that. Here I was thinking, I was, it was like pride and ego. I allowed it to get into yeah. the front of my brain. But you, you mentioned there for a moment of when people say no, they've sort of already made up their mind. Have you noticed or is there any like tricks or techniques that you can give or that you've used to get someone from saying no and being set on that to actually saying yeah. yes later on? Well, there are, shall I say, two schools of thought, right? So one is the never take no for an answer. No means not yet. You know, there's that, right? So you just persevere and whatever. The other theory is, which is closer to my theory, which is if a person says no, cut your losses, get the hell out of there, move on to the next thing. Why waste your time? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm closer to that model. Now, Partially, I can be in that model because I'm 66 years old and, you know, I'm not trying to break into an industry. I'm not trying to get my first job, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there's two completely conflicting pieces of advice there. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know which one you should take. Um, it's kind of like dating, right? I mean... There's two theories of dating. You keep asking her or him until he or she says yes. The other is if they say no, you move on to the next prospect. Well, same thing. Wear them down. <laughs> um, I, I lean more to the, okay, for me in doing this, and this is what I've realized. If someone says no to me originally, it's because I'm not big enough. 
and they don't want to waste their time at the moment. And secondly, I always say, well, okay, that means it's not at the moment, not the present moment is mm -hmm. not a good time. So right. it's not now. Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So then I wait. It's like I have a saying that I uh, so often say, I, I always like persistently practicing prayer with patience and perseverance. <laughs> and well, how, how many downloads do you get for each episode these days? It depends like on, on the actual person that comes on, like averaging around 10,000, 20,000. Um, well, that's great. Yeah. For the first year it was, it was really good. And I, I just started putting things on YouTube and I had a couple of them sort of like blow up on on YouTube, but it's, it's very like, it's a hard thing because sometimes you get ones that only reach a thousand. Sometimes you get other ones that reach 10. Trust me. I, I think the hardest part of podcasting, podcasting in general is hard, right? So it's, mm. it's hard to get the guest. It's hard to prepare. It's hard to do a good interview. It's hard to edit the interview. But then the hardest thing of all is to get people to listen to it. And I can't tell you that I have figured that out yet. It would be a lie if I told you I knew the answer to that. But you have a pretty successful podcast yourself where you've actually did some very high profile people and done a stellar job at doing that in the first place. I guess what I could ask you right now is how did you, how did that all begin and what have you learned about the art of an interview? Well, it, you know, it, I'm a instant success. It only took me 35 years. So, um, <laughs> I, and I listen, I, I will tell you quite candidly, that I think my guest list is as good as anybody's in podcasting. Anybody's, NPR, anybody's. If you looked at Jane Goodall, Margaret Atwood, Ariana Huffington, Martha Stewart, Christy Yamaguchi, Steven Pinker, Steven Wolfram, Waz, you know, I got them. I got them. No question. But I don't know how to get millions of subscribers. So I have tens of thousands of subscribers. I want millions. So, you know, I look at Joe Rogan and I say, well, what does he have that I don't have? And I don't have the answer to that question. Um, part of it is he started earlier. So it was a land grab. And you know, we, when he was in starting podcasting, it was like Lewis and Clark and Oklahoma. And, you know, you just put your stake in the ground and you say, okay, this is my hundred acres. Well, you and I entered in the last year, it was more like, oh, we're in downtown Manhattan and we have to find something to sublet. It's a little different. Yeah. Especially like if you already do have like a name, whether it's in business and you've decided to start your own podcast, people actually recognize that name. Yeah. Well, that helps. It does help a lot. Whereas for me, I started this, nobody knew who the hell I was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Should I should I put my time in speaking with Jay, who's from Sydney, Australia. Uh, he's just started this thing, doesn't really have all the numbers yet. He's, yeah. you know, it's, it's all those kind of questions that sort of I understand that people ask. And I like how you mentioned the Joe Rogan thing. Partly I think it's because he had a big name before and being in UFC and comedy, but also because like the way he interacts with his guests too mm -hmm. is very unique. Um, and it's like, the art of an interview, it's, it's one of those things that it's very hard to teach. <laughs> you just got to like, like sometimes you got to go with the flow and, and sort of try mm -hmm. and navigate as best you can. Um, 
But what have you noticed doing doing podcasting about interviewing people and asking all the right questions? I, listen, I, I can't tell you that I think I've mastered podcasting, um, particularly the marketing of podcasting. Uh, getting the guests, as I said, I got the guests. The questions, I prepare two to four hours for each episode, you know, reading about them, reading their books, all that. Uh, I probably spent another two hours editing the raw audio. And then a sound design engineer takes his pass at it, which is probably another five hours. Mm -hmm. So all told in every episode of you know one hour of Remarkable People, there's probably 10 hours of work. So what, what do you think that number is for you? Oh, it's a lot bigger than that because I release three episodes yeah. a week and yeah. there's a lot of like content that does go into it, like all the social media posts saying- what Oh, no, I'm not counting that. I'm just saying from the time you decide to interview, you know, Jane Goodall till oh. the time that it's done, but not marketed, just- Getting the done audio, how many hours do you think there is? I'd say around 15 hours. Yeah. For an episode. Yeah, I spend yeah. a lot of time like either researching a person, getting mm -hmm. to know, but I also like going into some interviews, depending on the person, completely blind. So I can have an mm. organic, enriching conversation with the person because I feel like that's where mm -hmm. the most value lies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, there's that. And then there's also actually having the interview. Sometimes they can go for about an hour. I've had one that went for two hours, just depending on how much time the person has. And mm -hmm. then actually editing it. So I listen back to it again and <laughs> see if there's anything yeah. that I've said or they've said and it doesn't really make too much sense. I get chop it out. <laughs> um, and then it's more or less like taking another pass at it, like not just the actual audio. Yeah. Well, maybe I can save you some time. <laughs> Please. <laughs> do, do you know what a product called Descript? I don't know. Okay. So how do you edit audio? Do you use some like audition or something like that? And you just go back and forth and, you know, try to pluck out what you want to get rid of that kind of thing. I use audition and I also use Premiere Pro. So, okay, but you you're listening to clips and then you're you're kind of moving that thing. You say, okay, so that's where he said, uh, and I'm gonna cut that out, right? Yes. Okay, so I'm gonna change your life right now. So Wait. there's a product, there's a product called Descript, and what Descript does is it provides a text transcript of your audio. Uh -huh. Then you edit the text and it edits the audio. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so for example, when I interview people, it's an hour and in an hour between me and the guest, we say, um, uh, right. Yeah. But uh, well, you know, repeat words, uh, you know, you know, right, <laughs> right, right. 250 to 500 times. Okay. And there's two schools of thought. One is you play it as you recorded it. It's natural. That's how life is. My school of thought is I want to make both of us look as smart as we can. So when somebody says, well, working for Steve Jobs, yeah, um, yeah, that was difficult, right? I mean, he really was stubborn, right? And um, yeah, but um, right? I mean, I, I, 
am I right? And, you know, and so all, all of that goes away. And you just want where the person says, Steve Jobs was difficult to work for, but he was a genius. Mm. Right? So, see, I did right, right there. So what you can do with the script is say, get all the filler words and ignore them in the audio. And so when you play back the audio, all the ums and uhs and right, 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 are all gone. You can bring them back, but they're all gone. And so this is a way that you can edit audio much more efficient than what you're doing right now by two or three times. Thank you so much for the recommendation. That is that is so cool. That's going to save me a lot of time, definitely, because I, I am one of those people that has my favorite like keywords that I always say. One of them yeah. is as well. And wow, <laughs> I'm always saying I should put it on a t-shirt like, yeah. and wear it. Like this is exactly what Jay, Jay says all the time. Um, this is cool. It's like a, ma- a mini masterclass in podcasting. <laughs> um, but I want to sort of steer the conversation back to okay. you, Guy, and and your story. And so, how did you how did you grow up? What what were some of the lessons that you learned growing up, and what did you want to be? When you grew so up. I came from a lower middle class family in Hawaii, uh, not wealthy, but certainly not immigrants fresh off the boat with only a suitcase. Okay, so you know I never knew I was poor, but I guess relatively speaking, I was poor, but not so poor that I didn't have clothes and didn't have food. Okay, or housing, and uh, my parents uh, sacrificed a lot so that I could go to a good high school. The good high school led to a good college. The good college led to meeting somebody who worked at Apple, who gave me a job at Apple, and the rest is history. Mm. Um, I think the secrets to my success are grittiness, that I am willing to work hard, uh, that I came from a lower middle class family. So it's not like I was handed a silver spoon or a silver platter. And, you know, there are some silly stories that I tell that some people find um, make me look shallow. But a couple times when I was in high school, I was robbed. And another time in high school, somebody gave me a ride in a Porsche 911. And I'll tell you, those three things changed my life because I decided I was not going to live someplace where you get robbed and I was going to own a Porsche. And that's why I studied and worked hard. So, you know, if you ask some very successful people, you know, what's the key to your success? When do you, you know, how'd you develop your drive and all that? They're going to give you answers like, yeah, I wanted to change the world. I wanted to dent the universe. I wanted to, you know, make the world a better place, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I wasn't about changing the world. I just wanted to change the car. (laughs) Did you end up getting your Porsche? Several. <laughs> uh, um, why specifically? I'm curious. Why specifically a, a Porsche in the first place? I, it's. I think it was just imprinting that early in my life. I got a ride in a 911, and I just got imprinted. That's the way to go. Mm. Um, in college, my college roommate came from a wealthy family, and I once visited him, and his mother let me drive a Ferrari. Ooh. So that was a uh, you know that just kind of reinforced the whole shallowness of my motivation but uh i i just i don't know i just ferraris i was okay and we're really going down some rat holes here but um (laughs) believe it or not porsche once invited me to go on a a dealer uh, it was the country managers of porsche from all over the world met and they went to italy 
for kind of a executive offsite meeting, you know, thing. And believe it or not, Porsche took all of us to the Ferrari factory. So, I mean, you'd think they're competitors, but I guess not. So <laughs> Porsche took us to the Ferrari factory. And I, I swear I remember this right. But so we're walking around and getting a tour of the Ferrari factory and it's break time. And I swear there were people from the assembly line sitting in partially completed cars, smoking. And I said to myself, I am never going to buy a Ferrari because, you know, Luigi, who was making my Ferrari, was smoking in it on his break. And, I, you know, what else did he do? So now probably somebody from Ferrari is going to hear this and say, that's not true, guy. It would never happen. But I swear I remember it that way. So, it kind so of, I've never owned a Ferrari. Kind of lays a bad imprint in your actual Yeah, Say something like that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, imagine if imagine if you went to you know the Macintosh factory and you saw someone smoking on the line on his break as Macintosh, you know, like, and Macintoshes are flying by and he's like taking a you know, yeah. Would you buy a Macintosh? I mean, Probably not. Uh, no, exactly. Same thing with food, right? When you, I, I've seen a couple yeah. of chefs, they've gone out for a cigarette break, they haven't washed their hands, they go back inside and they start <laughs> with the food. I'm like, what the hell? I'm getting out of here. I'm not going to go anywhere near that. Um, there was actually one particular time where my family, we went to a pretty popular uh, burger place here in Sydney and we turned up there and it looked absolutely filthy. Like it was disgusting. Yeah. Yet we had been, yeah. been told about this massive giant burger yeah. We need yeah. to try. So we, we get there. It's filthy. We order the food. We get the big burger. And then my dad goes to the, to the toilet and he sees a guy that had just finished up. He didn't wash his hands. He was a chef. And he walks out and starts playing with the meat. No. And then he get, comes out and then he sees another chef that had just been outside for a cigarette and comes back inside, goes and starts playing with the meat. And he says, <laughs> get up, we're going. We're not gonna, we're gonna, not gonna touch the meat or, or any <laughs> food. Oh my goodness, that was like um, that was an experience and half. <laughs> but it's, ah. it leaves those imprints of no kidding. Um, you know, my my favorite place to eat in Australia is a little place at Balmoral Bay. It's the Balmoral Bathers Club or something, and. Yep. They have the best muesli and the best breakfast. And I love Belmoral Bay. I think it's Belmoral Bay. Belmoral Bay, yeah. Very yeah. Awesome, I have to say. Uh, there's so many other places you've got to try, guy. Like when you do come back to Sydney, <laughs> let me know and I'll take you to some amazing other places. But um, I know there's, Jap- there's a Japanese restaurant right underneath the Sydney Bridge. Uh, I can't, what do you call that area? The rocks or something? Yeah, the rocks. Yeah, yeah. 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 So there's a Japanese restaurant right under the bridge that just has really great Japanese food there. Um, All right, we'll we'll go there. (laughs) Check it out. We'll go there. Um, I normally ask my guests towards the end, but I'm going to ask you now, what is the weirdest food combination you've ever tried? Because we're on the subject of food. The greatest food combination? Weird. I am... I am I am not an Epicurean. I mean, I just, you know, 
one of my favorite foods is spam musubi, right? So it's spam with rice. It's it's like an Australian says, my favorite food is Vegemite. So uh yeah, the I'm not a I'm not a foodie. I just eat what's served. Mm, I'm not a um <laughs> My Aussie friends are going to hate me for saying this, but I don't like Vegemite. <laughs> I, I loathe the well, stuff. Well, who likes Vegemite? I mean, yeah. Uh, it's, it's disgusting. But anyway, um, <laughs> I, I want to I steer the conversation back a little bit more to, to your okay. story of working, working in Apple and um, how long were you actually working with Apple for? And Yeah. yeah. I worked for Apple twice, once from 83 to 87. And then once from 95 to 97, the first time I was a software evangelist. So my job was to convince developers to create Mac products. The second time I was chief evangelist. And that time my job was to preserve the Macintosh cult and community. Mm. Was that hard to do? The second time? Second time. The second time was harder because at that point, you know, Apple had fired Steve Jobs and John Scully and it was a whole controversy and, you know, layoffs and all that. But, um, you know, Apple pulled through, not because of me, but Apple pulled through. And what did you notice during that time about being creative and what it means to actually be creative? I, I can't tell you that I consider myself a creative person, you know, well, compared to Steve Jobs, who is, but listen, I, I am just a hard worker and I think I have good judgment about um, what can sell. Mm. Although <laughs> I've been wrong more times than I've been right, but I've been right more times than most people. How's that? Mm. So uh, like right now I'm involved with a Sydney based organization called Canva and mm. Canva is just rocking. Oh, yeah. um, and I, I call this I call this guy's golden touch, which is not that I touched Canva and turned it to gold. Guy's golden touch is whatever is gold, guy is going to touch. <laughs> so Canva is 24 karat gold. What attracted you to Canva in the first place? Well, they found me. They found me because uh, my team and I were using Canva to make Twitter graphics. So oh. they found me. I didn't really know who they were. And, um, you know, Mel and Cliff reached out to me. Thank you, Lord, for them doing that. Melanie, I think, has created something truly remarkable for a lot of yeah. people. And, like, just changing the industry, especially for, for a, lot of, um, a lot of business people, making it yeah. affordable too. Um, yeah. So speaking about evangelists, like, you, you have this, this term for yourself, bringing the good news. Uh, mm -hmm. What is one particular story in your life that sort of made you realize that you are an evangelist and you wanted to become more of an evangelist for the rest of your life? When was that moment for you? Well, I, I think that, you know, the start of my relationship with evangelism is, of course, the Macintosh division. And we truly did see it as not merely another personal computer, but a philosophy of uh, democratizing computers so that everyone could use them and to put control into the hands of individuals as opposed to IT departments. And uh, it was easy to evangelize Macintosh. It was so obvious. Mm. Why did you decide to leave Apple in the first place? Are you still part of that? I, I left twice to start companies. Um, if I had not left those two times, I would not be on your podcast right now because 
my people's people would have rejected you. Mm. So, <laughs> you would have, you would have never got through to me. <laughs> I can imagine. So it all works out full circle. It all works out. Absolutely. Which is, which is interesting because, okay. So second time that you decided to leave Apple, what was the catalyst behind that decision? Start another company. Which company? Uh, both time. Uh, Garage Technology Ventures, a, a VC firm. And were all yeah, they, I left, I, were they successful? I, you know, not home runs. I mean, they were okay, but certainly nothing like Canva. Canva is, you know, uh, I think one of the um, advantages of being successful with something like Canva is you get to reinvent history. Mm. So, you know, it, you could make the case quite objectively that I started my career with a bang with the Macintosh division. I'm ending it with Canva. So we started in 83. I, I began at Canva in 2016. So, you know, those 30 years or so, a lot of flailing, but I started great and I'm ending great. And so that's all I'm going to be remembered for is Canva and Apple. I love that. Not, not all the, not all the flailing in the middle. Mm. But the flailing in the middle sort of got you to where you need to be today. And it yes, you, yes. taught you a lot of lessons. Yes, but I understand that perspective, but it's not like you would sit down and say, okay, so why don't I flail for 30 years to prepare myself for my ultimate success? <laughs> you know, mm. you flail because you had to flail, not because you wanted to as prep. Mm. Were you ever afraid to leave Apple and start your own business again? Uh, I, I afraid is to, you know, I, I, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. There was no question, but to be honest, uh, every entrepreneur is afraid. Every entrepreneur is afraid that his or her product won't ship and people won't buy them. And any entrepreneur who tells you any different is lying to you. Mm. And that's whether it's Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, Guy Kawasaki, or somebody starting a bakery. Everybody is afraid. Mm. Just some people push through the fear and some people don't. What is your relationship with fear currently? Uh, I don't know. I still have fears. The, the, my fears are different, right? I, it's not like I have a fear of running out of money. Not that I'm filthy rich, but <laughs> it's not that kind of thing. It's more like... Um, you know, 66, I'm afraid of getting coronavirus, right? Mm. I'm afraid that something will happen to my kids. Uh, something will happen to my wife. Am I afraid that I'm going to antagonize somebody on a podcast and they're not going to hire me? No, I don't give a shit. You, you know, whatever. Um, so, you know, as you get older, your fears change. Mm. Have you ever antagonized somebody on a podcast? Just out of curiosity? Yeah, you mean a, a recruiter? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, by definition, if I antagonize the recruiter, I wouldn't know, right? Because a recruiter is not going to call you up and say, hey, you know, I was going to recruit you, but. <laughs> you said when you did this podcast. <laughs> yeah, when you did this podcast with Jay, you offended me, so I didn't offer you a position. That ain't going to happen. And um, what have you noticed about, I guess, questions? Like, is there one particular question that you have for yourself that you haven't been able to answer over the years? Uh, you know, I would say no, 
but that implies that I am omniscient. And that's not true. It's just that, I, you know, I don't, honestly, I don't sit around a lot questioning myself. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a doer and I'm a greedy person. Mm. So. I like that about you guy. You're very humble at the same time <laughs> and you just, you just get it done. There's no like beating around the bush as we, as we say here in Australia, they're just like go yeah. directly to it and let's get it done. Um, you, I'm curious about you've, you've written how many books more than 15. 15 books. And one of them you've written called wise guy. Now I'm curious yeah. about that unique title wise guy. Now, normally yeah. you say wise guy means you're being sarcastic, <laughs> um, but, or, or it means you're in the mafia or you're in the mafia. Exactly. So right. I'm curious, how did, what is that book really about? How did you come up well, with the title? Yeah. It's, it's the stories of my life that imparted wisdom to me. Mm. So it's, it's kind of like chicken soup for the soul, yep. only all my stories. And so it's not an autobiography or a memoir because, I mean, I haven't had that kind of life. You know, Mother Teresa has a memoir. Uh, Martin Luther King has a memoir. Guy Kawasaki doesn't have a memoir. So it's all these little lessons in life from these stories, like, you know, me getting robbed or me writing that 9-11 um, that influenced my life that I hope can provide some insights and wisdom to other people, what which is you... kind of like my podcast. You know, my the point of my whole podcast is to help people become a little more remarkable by listening to it. Mm. Remarkable. I like that word, man. Like it has a lot of, a lot of meaning behind it. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to ask you what was your favorite interview because I think that is a stupid question um, for, for a podcaster, but I'm going to ask you about <laughs> uh, you've had a lot of remarkable people on there. Mm -hmm. Which one for you sort of gave you the most renewed perspective that you'd never thought about before in your life? Oh. Listen, I've had 52 great interviews. I, every one of them added something. I, I, I can't, I can't tell you that there's one in particular that just changed everything for me. Mm. Um, by definition, you know, I, I'm highly, highly selective on who gets into my podcast and, um, because they have to pass it, it it's let's just say there are let's say there's a person who wants to get on right and and i would ask the question well would you want your kid to grow up like him or her mm. that's question number one question number two would you want your kid to marry him or her or somebody like him or her and then you know Question number three is, well, <laughs> you know, if the answer to either of those or either of those is no, then why would you have this person? Because he or she isn't remarkable. So, so you know, it's remarkable people. It's not rich people. It's not famous people. You know, to, to take an example, let's say there's a billionaire who runs a private equity fund. Mm. Okay. Not clear to me that that person would get on remarkable people, um, right? On the other hand, 
I've had a person who was, was smuggled across the U.S. border and today works for Adobe. She has a remarkable story of overcoming poverty, much more impressive than the general manager of Goldman Sachs, who what was you know, born in Connecticut and went to Andover and then went to Harvard and then went to Yale and now works for Goldman Sachs. Mm. Who cares? Mm. And it's kind of like what I do with my own and the story box is getting to really the enriching part that people can actually take away and use for their own life, mm -hmm. like learning from you and your story. And I think your story is remarkable how you went from, you know, Apple running your own business, Apple again, now Canva, <laughs> starting your own podcast, written 15 books. And it's like, my, my question is always why and why how, what? why did you why did do, I do it? Why did you do all that? Because and I had four tuitions to pay. <laughs> oh, that is that's why <laughs> that is a good answer and four tuitions and i wanted to buy cars mm, you wanted to buy a porsche and you got multiple of yeah. them it's pretty cool no, not anymore but i mean over the course <laughs> of 35 years i did so um but yeah now at the end of my life I, I want people to remember me for empowering people, empowering them with my writing, my speaking, my investing, my advising, and now my podcasting. Mm. So that's what I want to be remembered for. I empowered people. Mm. You, you're jumping ahead to one of my, my final questions. <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm curious about what you have learned over your career or over your lifetime about stories and what do you love the most about stories oh i think stories are absolutely essential to communicate any idea uh, much more so than declarations and adjectives you know to say that i have patent pending curve jumping paradigm shifting enterprise class scalable software it's like every one of those adjectives is meaningless so it's much more important to tell the story of why your company or product exists. Mm. So I'm a huge believer in stories. Uh, I When I give my talks, I usually use a top 10. And for every recommendation, there's a story that supports that recommendation. Mm. So there is nobody who believes in stories more than I do. Mm. Oh, I can, I can uh, second that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a huge proponent and lover of stories. I feel like each and every one of us does have a story. It's unique to that person. Yeah. There are similarities, but it's always unique. Stories have the innate ability to change nations, to move people in, in that way, to convince. It also has the ability to go in a bad and negative way. There's tons of bad stories, not in the sense of the bad storytelling, but they're actually bad stories. Um, yeah. For example, like Holocaust, that's a bad story. Yes. Yes. But still it changed a lot of people's viewpoints and society and everything like that. That's what I mean. It's so powerful to move. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm a huge lover of stories myself and even my story is crazy and, and <laughs> wild <laughs> and I'm only 24. So I'm, I'm well, yeah. 
well, uh, I still got a lot to learn. I'm not, I'm not there yet, guy, and my story is still evolving. So, I, okay. Um, my my second final question for you, guy. Yep. Is what is the the worst piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, uh, boy, no one's ever asked me the worst piece of advice. Uh, huh. uh, let's see, try an IBM PC? No. Um, <laughs> quit Apple? Quit Apple? Uh, that's a bad piece of advice. Uh I, I, yeah, I must admit, I don't, I either, it's not that I haven't had bad advice. I think that part of my success in life is that um, I don't waste bandwidth. So I don't, I can't remember the bad advice because my definition, why would you remember bad advice? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to have to punt on that question. I don't have a good answer for you. There's quite a few people that have actually said similar, like, oh yeah. It's huh. um, you're not alone in that in that camp. <laughs> like e even even for me, when people give me bad advice, I sort of put it off to the side, or I use it as fuel to get to the the other side. The good advice, yeah. The good, the good advice, which you know, if you think about it, the bad advice ends up being good advice in the first place, <laughs> like later on. Yeah, yeah. You back yeah, on. maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. One story that I'll tell you real quickly. Uh, my, I used to be in real estate. So I used to sell multi-million dollar houses. And there was one particular mm -hmm. house that my boss at the time, he told me, he's like, this is the worst piece of advice. He basically told me to give up, but he's like, <laughs> don't waste your time on a dead duck. And he's like, there are so many other properties out there that you could be selling, but yet you're wasting in quotation marks time yeah. on selling this property. And I said, well, I'm going to sell it and I'm going to prove you wrong. And the thing is, yeah. if I had given up, I wouldn't have met the amazing couple that I would never have sold it. It probably would have still continued on the market. The couple were in a difficult situation, so they probably wouldn't have gotten any money from it. So the the point was, it was bad advice if I had taken it and just said, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to follow him because, you know, everything that he says is gospel. Yeah. But I chose not to. <laughs> And ended up being the best piece of advice later on <laughs> for me. So if if only we could figure out in advance what's good and bad. <laughs> exactly, I know, right? It would be so. Therein awesome. lies the hard part. Yeah. <laughs> if we yeah. all had that, that mindset, but um, my, no my, kidding, no, yeah. <laughs> no kidding. My my final <laughs> question for you, guy. This is my all time favorite question. I ask everyone at the end. Yes. So it's a hypothetical yes. question. You just imagine. And you sort of touched on it a little bit earlier um, when I mentioned it, uh, but you've been able to reach the age of 100 and your friends have decided to put together a film for you, the Guy Kawasaki film, of everything you've ever yeah. seen and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the yeah. world you've got it all. We'll just call it magic. But they've been able to get yeah. it, show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that yeah. film to say and to show about your life? Uh, probably there'll be two things that my kids grew up to be, you know, good people. And that I, at some point became a pretty good surfer. <laughs> <How's that? laughs>
<laughs> I definitely watch that. Uh, <laughs> I definitely okay. Well, guy, thank you so much. Alrighty. For your thank you. Thank Where can you. people find you and connect with you? Uh, GuyKawasaki.com or LinkedIn. Fantastic. Well, Guy, thank you so much All right. for the Storybox Podcast. Take care. Take care. Thanks nice to talk to you. Thank See you in Balmoral Bay. Bye. See you there. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the story box. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.